Good evening, and welcome to the Spring Series 1984 of the Friends of the Book Arts Press. There is, as yet, no schedule for the spring semester. There will be a schedule for the spring semester, and it will be mostly continuous. But I think that all of the friends do know that Sandy Kirschenbaum, Sandra Kirschenbaum, the editor of Fine Print, is lecturing in this room next Monday at 6 o'clock on the establishing of Fine Print and its first 10 years of existence. A lecture which has special point, I think, because in the beginning of March, Mr. Nicholas Barker will be lecturing on the founding of the book collector and the first 25 years of the existence of that periodical. And this is one of a series that old-timers here know has been continuing for a long time. Peter Davison has meditated on the library and uh, so on and according. The annual meeting of the American Printing History Association will be held here at Columbia this Saturday at 2 o'clock in room 506. At that meeting, John Dreyfus, the celebrated British typographer and consultant in book design, will be given the 1984 American Printing History Association Annual Award for Excellence and Contribution to the Field of Printing History and there will be the inevitable reception thereafter in this room. That's at 2 o'clock this coming Saturday. Uh, that should be over. The formal part of the proceedings should be over about 3.30 or quarter of 4, I should think, and the reception will start and go until about 6. Otherwise, it remains only for me to express great pleasure in uh, having the big enchilada himself to come to lecture this evening. He can work that out afterwards. Uh, he needs no other introduction, I think. Mr. D.F. McKenzie. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. I hope it's not too hot for you to taste. Um, it's a great pleasure to me to be here, and I am greatly flattered by uh, your attendance. I know many of you are very, very busy people and very distinguished people, and I'm very honored to have you uh, come this evening. Um, I perhaps should just uh, say to begin with that it occurred to me when I was seeking around for a topic uh, for this paper, uh, not specifically for this occasion, but uh, somewhat early, earlier last year, that there was something like two and a half thousand years of European history to be found in one decade in New Zealand in the 1830s, insofar as this related to the whole question of uh, the movement from morality to um, literacy uh, and the introduction of printing and the reception of a printed product and then to the refinement of printing in terms of typography. Well, if you think that's uh, a somewhat modest topic, uh, um, I hope you won't feel that I'm being too portentous about it when I come to survey it. Well, as I'm sure most of us have now come to understand, the discipline of bibliography cannot be limited to the study of books as physical objects, whether manuscript or printed. In at least three ways, our subject is ineluctably expanding. First, what it's now fashionable to call the impact of print can only be measured, of course, in relation to a far older manuscript culture which print parallels and only in part displaces. But a serious historical concern with any manuscript culture and its fullest ramifications can't be divorced from questions about the origins, social range, 
and different levels of literacy in that culture. And literacy, both as a concept and as an historically traceable phenomenon, is inseparable from a concern with the condition, both precedent uh, and concurrent, of orality and the recording function of memory. We have only to think of, say, Homer as an oral memorial text, later made incarnate in manuscript and print, to see at once the impossibility of denying to bibliography any stage of the composition, dissemination, reception, and descent of that text. Orality, literacy, print can, of course, be so ordered as the primary, secondary, and tertiary stages of a perhaps misleadingly progressive historical sequence. And we may, as bibliographers, study them as distinct phases, each with its own impact and forms of record in the evolution of Western society. But we must also, I think, recognize more frankly the diverse nature of any one stage and their persistive interaction. The words I am saying to you now are written, indeed they are typewritten. I, therefore, speak my book. You hear these letter forms which only this I can see. Well, that's a common uh, trick. In other words, what we much too readily call the book is a friskier and therefore more elusive animal than the words physical object will allow. In such matters, uh, social anthropologists have shown a lively interest in forms of evidence which we should all, I think, call bibliographical, since they relate to writing, reading, and the distribution of texts. But in extending the definition of the word book to include quite elementary forms of written record, and in taking a more dynamic view of the social origin and functions of all recorded texts, anthropologists do perhaps have something to teach us. Orality and literacy are not, after all, artifacts, but highly variable human conditions whose shaping force on the form and efficacy of texts we cannot ignore. What fundamentally we study, therefore, is not history of the book, and not even the history, but the sociology of texts. But there is a second way in which bibliography is inevitably expanding, Although individually, as specialists, we each of us recognize the intrinsic interest of every physical element which goes to make up a book in its most advanced form, paper, type, binding, and so on, we have still, I think, as editors, to extend to each of those physical elements any positive textual significance. We practice textual criticism as the meanings of words, and we study, on the other hand, and discreetly, book trade history. Occasionally, a Hinman or a Blaney will show how the deficiencies of a mechanical process negatively affect the choice or sequence, and therefore the symbolic import, of words. And so we seek, as editors, to eliminate error in the transmission of texts. McLuhan's catchphrase, the medium is the message, makes the point in an equally negative way. The ideal message is deformed message in the process of being made manifest. But once we acknowledge that the physical book as a whole is a rich complex of signs, each of which has its own human history, and all of which unite to create the finished book as a palpably articulated text, to form it, not deform it, 
then we enter an entirely new, more positive, and for me at least, more exciting phase of textual criticism. One thinks of Stanley Morrison's work on letter forms as cultural witnesses. Um, that example of a creatively interpretive mind addressing um, itself to the physical evidence um, makes it clear, I think, how the book as physical object becomes the book as expressive form. The inert materials of bark, clay, vellum or paper, script or type, ink, decoration, illustration, binding, we discover were never really inert at all, never merely physical. For everyone involved, a creative act, an expressive decision within a definable historical context to serve an author's intention, a bookseller's pocket, or an implied reader's comprehension of the text. The book, as physical object put together by craftsmen, as all of us know, is in effect alive with the human judgments of its makers. It is not even in any sense finished until it is read. And since it is re-creatively read in different ways by different people at different times, its so-called objectivity, its simple physicality, is really an illusion. Now, an editor who ignores those dimensions of his text, leaves many signs unread. But it is more directly the bibliographer's job, I think, to show editors and historians how rich an account of human behavior a book may yield to those who can read all its signs and recreate the historical dynamics of its making and reading. Now, I turn to my third and last general comment on the ways in which bibliography is bound to expand as a discipline, and this forms something of a prelude to my main subject. Until this century, its restriction to the study of books as marks on paper or some other physical medium, stable, visible, palpable, was unavoidable. Its limitation to letter forms, singly and in combination, mental and scribal or metal and printed, their design and production, Packaging, dissemination, sale, resale, collection, counterfeiting, conservation or dismemberment merely expressed the limited technology we then commanded to record and recover human behavior. We now have a newer technology which permits us to record the sounds of words and music and images in motion, as these in turn parallel and in part displace the manuscript letter, printed book, and the static graphics of illuminator and engraver, our visible words must interact with the kinetic image and what W.J. Ong calls the secondary orality of our electronic world. If one thinks of the mutability of computer-stored information, how quickly it's lost, um, it's clear that even some of our visible word hordes are shifting back towards the ephemerality of speech. Or to put it another, and in present company perhaps more acceptable way, we as bibliographers, must impart our skills to those whose professional concerns lie in sounds and moving images, so that their work, too, shows the insights and affirms the values of the discipline, and it's a very comprehensive discipline, which we profess, in order, responsibly, to conserve the texts of our own culture. Now, those points are not uh, so, remote, uh, so remote as you might think uh, well, I'd rather hope they're not quite so remote, as you might think, from my topic. The movement in New Zealand from orality through manuscript literacy to the introduction of printing and a full consciousness of the expressive resources of typography. 
two men and one document. William Colenso, effectively New Zealand's first printer. Coupland Harding, our first effective typographer. And the document, the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, if you think the Treaty of Waitangi is somewhat remote from your concerns, let me remind you that, of course, the Newbury is doing a study of Iroquois treaties. Each one of those, in somewhat comparable manner, illustrates, I think, the kind of problem I address in this paper. And there are 9,557 of them, which are currently being microfilmed. And that's a mighty package of North American history. Where are the bibliographers? Right. Well, I think Mr. Miller is the bibliographer in question. <laughs> As it happens, um, I think this model which I'm offering with those two men, the Treaty of Waitangi, also exposes the textual and contextual origins in the past in a bibliographical context of some of the most acute political problems now facing New Zealand in the present. In effect, what we're talking about is the manuscript as book, as time bomb. I'll grapple with this alternative technology. I mean, I'm much happier with books <laughs> um, and see what we get. And it doesn't matter too much about lights, I don't think. But that, that's fine, Terry. I, I don't think we need worry too much about that. 144 years ago, next month, on the 6th of February, 1840, 46 Maori chiefs from the northern regions of New Zealand signed, in inverted commas, a document written in Maori called Te Tiriti o Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi. In doing so, according to the English versions of that document, they ceded to Her Majesty, the Queen of England, I quote, absolutely and without reservation, all the rights and powers of sovereignty which they themselves individually exercised over their respective territories. That act of assent became the substantive ground of British sovereignty over New Zealand. Beneath a statue of Queen Victoria in my own city of Wellington, the European literacy myth implicit in that event of 1840 is complacently enshrined in the image of a Maori chief signing, as I say, the treaty with quill pen. The reality, as our first printer Colenso knew, and as we shall see, I think, as we meditate the sociology of that text, that treaty, was different. Twenty-five years earlier, the indigenous New Zealanders had been completely illiterate. They were a Neolithic race with a wholly oral culture and their own body of myths. Not one of their myths, however, was so absurd as the European myth of literacy and print as agents of change. And the missionaries' conviction that what took Europe over two millennia to accomplish could be achieved, had been achieved, in New Zealand in a mere 25 years. The reduction of speech to alphabetic forms, an ability to read and write them, a readiness to shift from memory to written record, to accept a signature as a sign of full comprehension and legal commitment, to surrender the relativities of time, place and person and their oral culture to the presumed fixities of the written or printed word, those things, absurd. When Samuel Marsden, our first missionary, bought 200 acres of land at Rangihua in 1814 for the first mission station, he drew up a deed of conveyance and solemnly had the Maori chief sign it by drawing on it a copy of his moko or facial tattoo pattern. 
The price was 12 axes, itself a potent symbol of the shift from a Neolithic culture to the Iron Age, the deforestation of New Zealand, and the pastoral economy to come. But the subtler, much more elusive and indeterminate technology was literacy. Consider its stages. And I'll just switch this on now. There are a few words which are going to pop up sometime soon. In 1815, Thomas Kendall, the first resident missionary, faced the problem of reenacting one of the most momentous transitions in human history, the reduction of speech to alphabetic form. Now, put like that, it sounds portentous, um, as in a literal sense, of course, it was portentous. But just imagine the problems of trying to capture strange sounds alphabetically, the miracle that underlies all our printed books. When one early traveller recorded what he thought he heard as the Maori word for paradise duck, he wrote, Pua Dagi Dagi. Um, well, <laughs> for Putangi Tangi, and he wrote, as you can see there, Digga Wagwa for Pi Waka Waka, Pi Waka Waka. So we had the paradise duck and the fantail transformed symbolically into those letters, into those words. Um, <clears throat> now, neither of those reductions to alphabetic form expresses either the visual or oral beauty of the originals. The place name, Hokianga, was rendered Shokianga, Sokiyana, Jokianga, and Chokahanga. Another village, Kerikeri, was heard and rendered Kidikidi. Muketu um, as Makitu. Well, now, my point is that those crude spellings are themselves, in the context you see of another culture, an English and a European culture, and in the context of specifically English word forms, culturally primitive and reinforce other such attitudes as to the primitive nature of the Maori people. Now, the absence of a philology, let alone a grammar and syntax for a non-European language, made a rational orthography extremely hard to devise. Yet until there was an orthography, the teaching of reading and writing was obviously impossible, and printing, of course, depended upon a standard set of letter forms. Kendall's first rough list of 1815 was revised and sent off to Samuel Lee, professor of Arabic at Cambridge. Kendall and two Maori chiefs, Hongi and Waikato, joined him there in 1820, and together they produced a grammar and vocabulary of the language of New Zealand. It was printed later that year by Watts, printer to the Church Missionary Society in London. Now, Kendall was determined that Maori should not be anglicised. C, Q and X were dropped for a start, but the grammar at that stage still included letters for non-Maori words, uh, non-Maori sounds thought necessary for foreign words, uh, an F, a hard G, a J, a V, a Z, and so on. So that it still ran to five vowels, 18 consonants, and one nasal consonant, the NG, which is, is, is the second to last in that list there. You, you're familiar with it, Nio Marsh, the detective uh, story writer. It included sample sentences, this first grammar, such as, I quote, the performance of the white man is good, the performance of the white man is exceeding good. But linguistically, at least, the performance of the white man still left room for improvement. In the next 10 years, by 1830, the alphabet was in fact reduced to five vowels and nine consonants, uh, with only two forms remaining unsettled, an H and a W. 
There were attempts to indicate a palatal H by adding an apostrophe, as in Xiongi, I haven't put that up, an H apostrophe O-N-G-I, and the voiced W, pronounced rather like an F, um, again by an apostrophe or by the combination W-H. Now, William Colenso, as printer, was quite crucial to all of this. And he argued for the doubling of long vowels, obviously to avoid special sorts with Macron above, the simple H to avoid using the troublesome Greek-style apostrophe, and V for WH, though he lost that battle, because he wanted to avoid setting two letters where one would do. Well, WH was ultimately confirmed, and so we have lots of place names, Fongare and so on, with a WH, which is pronounced uh, more or less like an F. So the alphabet that we have there was pretty well confirmed in 1842. But if you compare Māori as written with that alphabet with Māori as initially written only about 20 years before, rather less than that, then there has been a great cultural effort put in to uh, reducing the uh, spoken language to alphabetic form, and that has immediate consequences for the lay of the case, among other things. Well, the foreign consonants plus B, D, L, S, and Y had been dropped and foreign words were rendered in Maori forms. So, missionary became, as you can see there, mihaneri. Um, governor, an important word, becomes kawana. Well, I'll leave you to guess the next one. Um, those decisions, that's another <laughs> European importation. Those decisions about letter forms were typographically efficient, of course but they were culturally explosive. For by giving English words, governor, a Maori semblance, governor, they disguised their quite different conceptual import. But clearly, the first great book printed in New Zealand by Colenso, the Maori New Testament of 1837, is inconceivable without this prior shift from acoustics to optics, the visualization of sound in a simplified and standardized alphabet and the human motivations at work in bringing it about. Now, the preprint years of its evolution, 1815 to 30, were also those in which the missionaries made a tentative start to teach reading and writing. The decision to teach these skills in the vernacular seemed an efficient policy. English was difficult to master and would have split the population. A universal conversion of parent and child, of old and young, was only conceivable if they were bound together by their common speech within which the new learning could pass quickly, unimpeded by language barriers. More than that, the missionaries were all too well aware that English would give the Maori access to the worst aspects of European experience. So by containing them culturally within their own language, they hoped to keep them innocent of imported evils. By restricting them further to the reading of biblical texts and vocabulary, they limited the Maori to knowledge of an ancient Middle Eastern culture and at the same time, the missionaries enhanced their own role, morally and politically, as interpretive guides, a point I'll come back to when discussing the Treaty of Waitangi, but you might bear in mind in relation to my very first slide. In 1833, William Williams wrote that a reading population whose only book is the Word of God cannot fail to make a great moral change in the face of the country as soon as that word begins to take effect. He was a very intelligent man. And in 1842, when he should have known better, another missionary rejoiced that the Maori, having no other books to read but scripture and productions from scripture, their pursuits must all be of a sacred nature. He was an intelligent man. 
Now, such a vision implied that priority be given to the translation of scripture into Māori. This ideological bias was reinforced by doctrinal strife in 1839-40, just when the policy should have been relaxed, but when the Church Missionary Society faced competition from Bishop Pompelier's Catholic mission. William's response was, we require a vigorous effect at this time, sorry, effort at this time to meet the present demand for books before the papers come forward with their trash. I'm sorry, with their trash. Um, to, to study Colenso's, to study Colenso's printed output is simply to look at the expression of those policies. The incunable phase of New Zealand printing meant biblical texts in Māori. Well, the naivety there in the European attitudes is now patent. But it is also present in the program to teach reading and writing in the mission schools. The enthusiastic reports back to London of the remarkable desire of the Māori to learn to read, the further stimulation of that interest through native teachers, the intense and apparently insatiable demand so created for books form the cumulative pressure to supply the one instrument essential to give instant and local effect to universal literacy as the principal means to personal salvation. I mean, of course, the printing press. Now, we're not far from that rhetoric ourselves. But what was the reality? Kendall set up the first school in 1816, but it was not until the 1830s, the early 1830s, that numbers were at all significant. There is almost complete accord in the reports back to London. Not only that the schools were effective, but that Māoris achieved literacy with the greatest of ease. Of another school, it was said in 1829, not six years ago they commenced the very rudiments of learning. Now many of them can read and write their own language with propriety and are complete masters of the first rules of arithmetic. A visitor to one mission in 1833 noted, I was not prepared to find among a people who had previously no written language so many who had benefited by the instruction given in our mission schools. Here I observed all ranks and ages, chiefs and subjects, old and young, bond and free, receiving and communicating instruction with a degree of decorum and regularity which would have reflected credit on a school of the same kind in England. Catechisms, reading, spelling, writing on slates from dictation and ciphering formed the employment of the upper classes, by which, of course, he means the school classes, while the lowest were engaged in learning the alphabet and forming letters. In the girls' school, the senior classes read remarkably well and write equally from dictation on slates. Men of hostile tribes, even, now lay aside their antipathies and unite for instruction, disregarding the person of a teacher, even if a slave, and valuing instruction even from a child. The rhetoric gives it away, doesn't it? But how much of that rhetoric informs our own discussion of literacy and the democratization which it permits? The impression is also given by the missionary reports that once the rudiments were known, many a Maori pupil would go off and teach others. Another report says many of the natives who are living at a distance manifest a great desire for instruction and with very little assistance from us they are learning to read and write and their efforts have so far been crowned with success that they know some of the letters of the alphabet and can write them. Again, the rhetoric is interesting. Another report of 1833. There are many villages where schools are conducted entirely by the natives and some of them making considerable proficiency in reading and writing. Oh, the day is not far distant when the people generally will be able to read for themselves in their own tongue the wonderful words of God. But such reports are less informative as objective accounts, though, and I want to stress this, that 
though modern historians, my colleagues, treat those as objective accounts. These form their evidence. Um, anyhow, I don't think such reports are as informative as objective accounts as they are as expressions, at worst, of wishful thinking, or at best, of a readiness to define literacy and therefore later the effective impact of printed texts at a level far below that demanded by the social changes the Maori were being exposed to. It's as if the very notion of literacy itself compelled a heightened language of self-approval and infinite promise. Marsden, Hadfield and Pompelier, these missionaries, I've said it before, were intelligent men. But what could they have understood by the words reading and writing? For them to say, as Marsden did, I was much pleased to find that wherever I went, I found some who could read and write. They are all fond of reading. And there are many who have never had an opportunity of attending the schools, who nevertheless can read. They teach one another in all parts of the country. Or Hadfield in 1840. Vast numbers learn to read and write who do not attend school by possessing themselves of a book or part of a book and spelling it over until they are fully acquainted with every word of it. Or Pompelier. They easily learn to read and write without the necessity of constant teaching. It is only necessary to give them a few leaflets of easy reading and to write some characters on bits of slate to enable them to read and write their own language within three months. By comparison, R.K. Webb in the British Working Class Reader says that at the Borough Road School London in the early 19th century, it took 12 months to teach a child to read and between three and four years to write well and calculate. Well, more, re more realistic is a report by Fairburn in 1838. There is scarcely a petty tribe now to be met with where there are not some who can write and read. I mention this more particularly as it must sound strange to an English ear to be told that we have met with many of the self-taught natives who could write on a slate or paper so as to make their wants known while they could not read a single line from a book. They had learnt the symbol. Since they have got books among them, they make use of them. I have not the smallest doubt in the way of amusement, in teaching each other. It seems to have superseded their once favourite game of draughts. Well, that at least suggests the minimal competence achieved by, so many, uh, by many so-called readers. Now, if we reflect that the teaching of elementary reading is primarily oral, oral, not visual, because it involves the pronouncing and repetition of letters, syllables, and words, a practice reinforced when there are few books, fewer texts, and group teaching, we can appreciate how oral repetition from memory might masquerade as reading. And the Maori, used to an oral tradition, had a most retentive memory. The interconnection is evident in another missionary's report of 1832. For want of more translations of the scriptures, the natives are almost at a stand. Some have committed to memory all that has been printed. Or again, another witness of 1832. We feel the want of books for the natives very greatly. What they at present possess, they generally know by heart. Well, the memorized text of course, makes one a living library in a way that the red book cannot. Repetition of the catechism, known truly by heart, not read by eye, was, after all, the higher proof of conversion. Well, simply to illustrate the illusory nature of the presumed shift from morality to literacy, I quote Sir Apirana Nata, uh, a Maori uh, scholar who was writing on the Maori and printed matter as late as, as 1940. 
The printed matter indeed achieved a limited popularity, but for everyone who owned a copy of the scriptures and church liturgy, there were in my boyhood days still 50 or more content to listen to and memorize the words which were read out of the printed books by the ministers, teachers, or lay readers. Now, if reading the passively receptive and more easily acquired art could be so easily evaded, what of writing? This was the active counterpart of reading, a personally expressive skill, but one much harder to acquire and inhibited by the primitive nature, cost and scarcity of quills, ink and paper. Just as the oral element in reading persisted to limit the full and easy visual perception of texts, so too uh, reliance on writing and readiness to use it um, could only grow slowly from a long acquaintance with documents. Oral witness held its primacy over written evidence for centuries in Europe. To have expected a non-literate people to reverse that disposition within a decade was unrealistic. And one has to add that to presume that it has yet happened would be a gross political error. The main use of literacy to the Māori was not reading books for their ideas, much less for the access they gave to divine truths, but letter writing. For them, the really miraculous point about writing was its portability. By annihilating distance, a letter allowed the person who wrote it to be in two places at once, his body in one, his thoughts in another. It was the spatial extension, not the temporal permanence of writing, that became politically potent in gathering the tribes and planning a war a decade and more later. Historic time defined by dated and legally binding documents, represented a much more profound challenge to an oral culture used to reshaping its past traditions to accord with present needs. It's a challenge which is still, in New Zealand, resisted by the Māori. In the early 1830s, we see the hesitant beginnings of letter writing in written requests for baptism, proving, as William Yeats put it, that the heart of the sanguinary and untutored New Zealander is as the heart of the civilised and polished Englishman. The originals, of course, were in Māori, but I quote some. I, Pahau, am now writing a letter to you. Perhaps you will not be pleased with it and send it back. And then perhaps my heart will be sad and I shall cry. Now then, I am going to write to you. Read it first from the top to the bottom, on this side and on that side, before you say nonsense and throw it away from you and tear it to pieces. Now, Mr. Yates, listen to what I am going to say upon this paper. I have been thinking and thinking about what I am going to write, and now I am thinking you will shut your ears and will not listen to me. Another letter begins, my ink is not good, my paper dirty, and I am altogether ashamed. Not quite Caxton, but almost. Yet, yet another, from husband and wife, there are many mistakes in our two's letter. That our two's is all right, it's a dual case. Um, in our two's letter. And Mary says, do not send it. Wait and talk when he comes to Kerry Kerry. Now, untutored New Zealanders, um, these writers, in fact, were tutored. These writers, the manuscript makers, were the literate elite in Māori. Not draft players turned scribblers, but those trained to readiness for baptism. There's not much of an achievement there, is what I'm saying. 
The confident use of letters for political purposes by the Māori was many years away, nor did printing of itself become a re-expressive tool for the Māori until the 1860s. When it did so in Māori newspapers, the essential motives, the effective contextual forces, were economic, political and military, not religious. A Māori quotation. E wahini, e whanua, e ngaro ai te tangata, which translates as, by women and by land, men perish. The forcing issue for the Māori, then as now, was land. Only when literacy began to serve that supreme social interest could it be significantly achieved. Its roots in the text of an alien religion were impossibly shallow despite printing. But for the missionaries, printing was a great hope. This is the European myth of literacy expressing itself here. 1827. We feel very much the want of a printing press to work off some copies of portions of scripture which could be read by several natives now with us. 1828. We want a printer and a printer we must have. The plea to the Church Missionary Society was twice repeated in 1829. When the long sought after press did arrive, it was an anticlimax, proving that technology in itself is nothing without a human mind and dedicated skill to make it work in a context where it matters. In 1830, William Yates brought a small press from Sydney and a boy of 15 to help him. In his journal for September 1830, Yates noted that, in printing off a few hymns in the native language, we succeeded beyond our most sanguine expectations. These, in fact, were the first item ever printed in New Zealand. And he, he writes, we thank you for the press, he wrote back to London, and have no doubt but that, with the blessing of God, it will be an instrument of great good in this land. You will perceive by the copy of, him, of a hymn forwarded by this conveyance that we shall be able, in a short time, to manage it. Well, not to worry too much, but I thought we might as well have a slide or two now. No. Um, that is just a self-portrait uh, of Hongi on his, on, on his way to Cambridge in uh, 1814. He carved it just a while away, the hours as well as whittled away the wood. Um, and uh, that's the first of these things that, that, that William Yate published. Well, no, not quite, actually. No copy of the hymns is known, those hymns that I mentioned just now, no copy of the hymns is known to survive. But Yate and Smith also printed a small catechism in Māori, both extant copies of which testified to the printer's gross incompetence in planing the type, locking the form, and making ready. Um, writing of a new translation a year later, Yate faced facts. We shall not be able to print it here. Henry Williams, writing two years after the first experiment, told his masters, you have sent us out a printing press of a certain description, and a specimen of its production has been sent to you, accompanied with many expressions of delight. But these were first feelings excited by the novelty of the work. There stands the poor thing, enshrined in cobwebs, as an exciter for further expectations and desires. It has been examined by a printer of some experience who said he would not possess it as a gift. <laughs> As the Māori proverb says, one later recorded by our printer Colenso, even a little axe, well used, brings plenty of food. But with Yate as food gatherer, the missionaries starved. His ignominious effort in 1830 deprived, unfortunately, William Colenso of the honour of being literally New Zealand's first printer, a New Zealand Caxton, as Coupland Harding was later to call him, out of respect for the quality, I think, of his work, if not for chronology. Well, William Colenso was born in Penzance in 1811, 
1826, who was bound for six years to a local printer, John Thomas, uh, in that area. Um, uh, yes, I wonder what I've got next here, because I've cut some stuff up. And, uh, it's the focus, sorry. Um, four, right. So I tell you, this technology is really... Give me a book any day. Oh, yes, I've got it there, so we'll try and... Uh... Good. Um, I'll put this little bit in because I think it's, it's quite interesting this way. Um, in 1833, uh, Colenso moved to London from Cornwall and he found work with Richard Watson's sons uh, and son printers to the uh, Church Missionary Society and the British Foreign Bible Society. In fact, his memorandum book for this time survives detailing his wages and the way they were made up for composing, correction, altering heads, share of fat, um, or how his wages were sometimes reduced by candle fine and errors in casting. The last on one occasion cost him 16 and fourpence, which is a fair bit for an error in casting. Uh, so one looks very carefully at these matters. It is in this uh, book, this memorandum book, we find an interesting recipe for curing a, stick stan uh, sorry, a sick stanhope. Um, should the press ever break in the great bow, altered to staple, in this direction, put a piece of iron on in the dotted line, bore holes through, heat the iron red hot, and having all ready at hand, clap in the bolts and screw up. By this means, the iron will suddenly contract and hold it firm. Well, some anonymous articles that he wrote on religious topics came for printing to Watts, who recognised Colenso's handwriting. This led to an introduction to Danson Coates, who was lay secretary to the CMS, just as the New Zealand missionaries were again supplicating for a press in the mid-30s. Commissioned as printer by the CMS and preparing to leave for New Zealand in 1834, Colenso wrote in his diary, quote, in addition to Satan's temptations at having no interest in Jesus, he, he assails me with, you are going abroad and are unfit for the work. There's a great deal of self-doubt in Colenso. But in fact, there was none fitter for both tasks, either spreading the message or uh, fulfilling this role as printer. Colenso arrived at Paihia in the north of New Zealand on the 30th of December, 1834. The next day, he records, numbers of natives came to see me, and when they found I was a printer, were quite enraptured, crying out, puka puka. Um, and on Saturday, the 3rd of January, 1835, he wrote back to Coates in London. Uh, that's uh, Colenso's own uh, drawing of the scene. And this is another contemporary painting of it. So it's a rather nice spot to, to land on on Christmas Day or thereabouts. Um, he wrote back early in 1835... A memorable epoch in the annals of New Zealand. I succeeded in getting the printing press landed. Mind you, it was a Stanhope press, and, and I can tell you that takes some landing. I was obliged to unpack it on board, but I am happy to say it is all safe on shore. Could you, my dear sir, but have witnessed the natives when it was landed? They danced, shouted, and capered about in the water, giving vent to the wildest effusions of joy, inquiring the use of this and the place of that with all the eagerness for which uncivilized nature is celebrated. Certes... They had never seen such a thing before. I trust soon to be able to get it to work. May the Father of Mercies grant me strength and ability to work it for his glory. May it be instrumental under his blessing in bringing thousands to the cross of our Emmanuel and of sending away that sombre pall of darkness and gloom which the Prince of the Power of the Air has so long successfully wrapped around the inhabitants of these islands. Well, we call New Zealand and Māori Aotearoa, which means the land of the long white cloud, often cruelly 
uh, transformed into the land of the long white shroud, but still. Um, although he had a large Stanhope press, when he came to unpack his other supplies, Colenso found that there was no wooden furniture of any kind, no coins, no galleys, no cases, no leads of any size, no brass rule, no composing sticks, save a private one of my own that I had bought two years before in London, a most fortunate circumstance, no inking table, no potash, no lye brushes, no mallet and shooter, no roller irons and stock, though there was a massy cast iron roller mould, um, and no imposing stone nor page cord, and worst of all, actually no printing paper. Now, again, I find this interesting simply because just, just the idea of literacy is, is so quickly taken up and translated into the rhetoric. The idea of printing is so quickly focused in a single printing press. Um, fortunately, I, he says, I found a handy joiner in the bay who soon made me two or three pairs of typecases for the printing office after a plan of my own. For as the Maori language contained only 13 letters, half the number in the English alphabet, this time it was fining down, I contrived my cases so as to have both Roman and italic characters in one pair of cases, not distributing the remaining 13 letters, consonants, used in the compositing of English, such not being wanted. Such an arrangement proved to be a very good one while my compositing was confined to the Maori language only. But when I had any English copy to decompose, it was altogether the reverse. Then Yen and Maori were desirous of seeing something printed. The missionaries should supply some writing paper. The first sheet from the press should be part of the New Testament, and it should be small. The epistles to the Ephesians and Philippians was chosen. Colenso set it up, and on 17 February 1835, pulled proofs of what he thought was the first book printed in New Zealand. The printing office being filled with spectators to witness the performance. Um, or Colenso, knowing nothing of um, Yeats's earlier efforts in, in 1830, wrote home to Coates. This first fruits of the New Zealand press, which the Lord hath pleased to allow me to begin and complete, is very much liked by the natives. May it, being the word of God, be the means of making thousands wise unto salvation and a preface, as it were, to a more glorious diffusion of gospel light over these benighted islands. On 19 May 1836, he printed what was really the first English book, eight pages octavo, a report of the New Zealand Temperance Society. Well, given the later history of New Zealand's licensing laws, it was a prophetic start. Um, now, earlier that year, on the 23rd of March 1836, Having heard that supplies of paper and more equipment for him had reached Sydney, he began setting his one great work, the complete Māori New Testament. It was at a my octavo, set in small pica, um, uh, and running to 356 pages. On the 23rd of June, 1836, it's about 18 months later, not quite, uh, 15 months later, he pulled the first sheets of a run of 5,000 copies. I'm sorry, that's only um, three months later. He, he, he pulled the first sheets of a run of 5,000 copies of that New Testament. Now, when the Testament was finished, and this is in December 1837, which is 18 months roughly later, Colenso records that the demand for copies became great beyond expression from all parts of New Zealand. As evidence of interest and demand, he makes the incidentally valuable point, distinguishing reading from writing, that as not many of the principal Māori chiefs or their sons could then write, Many of them travelled on foot and barefooted to Paihia um, from very great distances to obtain a copy. In other words, in contradistinction to that earlier example, he didn't know how to fill out a book order form, as it were, and send it all. So they had to go on foot to, to collect their copy. 
Now, William Jowett, clerical secretary to the Church Missionary Society, responding to Colenso's expressed wish for ordination, advised him to turn his thoughts to the peculiarly useful and therefore honourable department which you do occupy. The sight of that New Testament in the native language which you have been privileged to carry through the press is such a sight as fills my heart with indescribable joy. Think now to what great ends it is capable of becoming instrumental. It will, moreover, help the fixing of the language, and school books and many other books will grow out of it. No doubt the Spirit of God will use this sword. Now, there's one excellent point, I think, there in Joet's response, to which I'll return. But here I just wish to note again the ecstatic tone which belies both the exact achievement and the future promise of literacy. Before Colenso, Yates had estimated in 1833 that 500 Maoris in the north could read. In 1834, Markham ventured not less than 10,000 people that could read, write, and do sums in the northern end of the island. Well, 500, 10,000? Refining such impressionism by apparently objective fact, one recent historian notes that between January 1835 and January 1840, Colenso printed, and this is the historian's way of putting it, three and a half million pages of religious material, and in 1840 produced over two million more. Figures, I suggest, as ignorantly impressionistic, though true, though true, as Yeats and Markham's. Added to the further information that Colenso's New Testament was reprinted in London in 1841, 43, 45, each time and 20,000 copies, it reinforces the missionary notion of widespread literacy and the immense impact of print. On those figures, by 1845, there was at least one Māori testament for every two Māori people in New Zealand. Colenso felt confident in writing in 1840 here I may be permitted to remark the press has been an instrument of very great good in this land. However partial it may be supposed I am in my opinion, I believe, and that belief too is deduced from what I have seen and heard on the spot, that the press has been more effective under God as an instrument of good amongst this people during the last five years than the whole body of missionaries put together. Well, that's, of course, him making his other dig. Um, but since Colenso's day and waste book, his paper book and ledger all survive, we can detail everything he printed for the years 1836 to 43. Now, in terms of history of the book, we can say exactly what his output was. But instead of using figures like three and a half million and two million pages, we as bibliographers would see that um, from January 1835 until January 1840, he printed only 16 items, set up in type only 34 sheets, and printed in all only 145,000 perfected sheets in five years. The New Testament, moreover, alone accounted for 22 of those 34 sheets and 122,000 of the 145,000 perfected sheets. In 1840, he printed 11 items involving 19 sheets and 90,000 perfected sheets. One book, the Psalms, accounted for a third of the setting and two-thirds of the impressions. Now, if this technical view of his output checks us slightly, uh, what of other evidence of reception? We've gone through a reality literacy print. Now, how is it received? Let alone, how was it distributed? But still, it's well known that people in an oral society, seeing books for the first time, often treat them as ritual objects. 
1835, many people who know not a letter wish to possess themselves of a copy of the translated scriptures because, because they consider it possesses a peculiar virtue of protecting them from the power of evil spirits. Um, at an early church service, it's recorded in um, the same year, many Maoris thought it highly proper that they should be armed with books at such a church service. It might be an old ship's almanac, or a castaway novel, or even a few stitched leaves of old newspapers. In 1836, a Maori fighting party declined to storm a pa because there was a printed Bible within, and they contented themselves, therefore, with a blockade. In 1839, I don't know quite what that does to the word, but still. In 1839, Taylor saw Maoris with mission books, or at least odd leaves from them, I suppose would necessarily be the case, rolled up and thrust through holes in the lobes of their ears. Um, uh, books, books, of course, were also useful for making uh, sort of roll-your-own cartridges. Um, one book so used was Milner's Church History, thus giving a slightly different sense to the phrase the church militant. Um, Colenso, William Colenso picked up such a cartridge in which the paper came from 2 Samuel and bore the words from chapter 19, verse 34, How long have I to live? And uh, Markham, uh, again in 1834, said his servants melted down his pewter spoons to make musket balls of them, and he adds, and the first volume of my Voltaire's uh, Louis Carpins uh, et Quinze torn up and cartridges made of them. In fact, I can't actually think of Voltaire being altogether displeased. Um, as the number of New Testaments disseminated was reaching saturation point, one, as I say, to every two Maoris in the early 1840s, just when the impact of printing should have been at its height, we find Selwyn noting, 1843, a general complaint in all parts of the country that the schools are not so well attended as heretofore. It has a kind of disappearing virtue. The more books one has, the less one needs to read them. Um, he remarked, I quote, a growing indifference to religion and neglect, and a neglect of the opportunities of instruction. Another missionary said, we have gained a very large portion of this people, but we have no hold upon their children. In 1844, another missionary could say at least, at last, it appears every year more evident that our present system of conveying instruction to these people is wholly inadequate to their present wants. They have been brought to a certain point, and we have no means of bringing them beyond that. So what we have here is not only disillusionment about the actual extent to which literacy of the most elementary kind had been achieved, but a clear example of the way in which even the most sophisticated technology, print, will fail to serve an irrelevant ideology, an alien religion. For the missionaries and their great instrument of truth had failed lamentably to equip the Maori to negotiate their rights with the Pākehā, that's the Europeans, in the one area that really mattered to them, and that was land. Nor was it merely a failure in Māori. In 1844, almost no Māoris spoke, let alone read, English. In that year, a settler said he had, not, he had met only two Māoris who did so. But as William Jowett had written to Colenso when congratulating him on the printing of the Māori New Testament, Colenso, as printer, had helped to fix the Māori language, or at least one dialect of it. Colenso himself later made the point that the oral memory, the oral memory, oral memory, as a faculty also perpetuated the new and corrupt forms of words born of settlement and trade, taking up the simpler and degenerate Māori forms used by the settler. Had it not been for the missionaries and printing books in correct Māori, the language would have been irretrievably lost. And I think that is a, is a, is a valid point. Now, I want to focus 
uh, I hope I'm not transgressing on Terry's very, very tight schedule, um, that I am approaching my end now. I want now to focus on one test of the missionaries' efforts to teach literacy in the 1830s, one test of Colenso's effect after five years printing, one example of a text which offers textual and contextual problems, one case study to prove that bibliography is an explosive subject. I return to the Treaty of Waitangi. The name, by the way, means the waters of lamentation. An authentic and genuine history of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi was written at the time by Colenso, though not published until 1890. This is where we go into text and textual criticism. On the morning of 30th of January 1840, Colenso printed in Māori 100 copies of a circular letter inviting Māori chiefs in the northern area to meet at Waitangi on 5 February. An English draft, a composite version by three men, Hobson, Freeman and Busby, had been cobbled together on the 3rd of February and was given to Henry Williamson, uh, sorry, Henry Williams on the 4th of February to translate into Māori. This first English draft, the foul papers, has not survived. Williams' translation was discussed with the chiefs on the 5th of February. Alterations were made and the revised Māori version copied onto parchment that night. The original copy of that revised Māori version has not survived. The fair copy of it on parchment was presented to 46 chiefs next day, the 6th of February, for their signatures. It is this document in Māori, um, a revised translation into Māori from an English draft, no longer extant, which is the Treaty of Waitangi. In fact, Governor Hobson had five copies made of it, five English versions made, not necessarily of it, and sent either to Sydney or London. There are minor differences in three of those versions, but the other two have a different date, differ substantially in the wording of the preamble from the others and from each other at one critical point in the second article. And it is critical. Comparison shows that the Māori text, the actual treaty, was not a translation of any one of those English documents, nor was any of the English versions a translation of the Māori text. One English version sent to the Secretary of State was personally endorsed by Williams, who said it was as literal a translation of the Treaty of Waitangi as the idiom of the language will admit of. This was untrue. As I've said, the treaty itself was a translation into Māori of an English draft. Therefore, an English translation from an English draft seems to be what we're dealing with. Um, but a comparable disregard for strict textual accuracy in our own time has led to the inclusion of one of the quite unauthoritative English versions being included as a schedule to the Waitangi Day Act of the New Zealand Parliament, 18, 1960. There are other complications of textual authority deriving from the fact that names were added to the treaty over the next seven months, 39 such names being found on a printed copy of the English text, which the signatories, being illiterate, could not have read. Now that makes, at its most extreme, my point about the non-literate state of the nation in 1840, after ten years of intensive teaching and five years of printing. But even if we confine ourselves to the written Māori text, how literate were the signatories? Remember that first slide I showed you? That was a, uh, that was a, a, a relief sculpture made at the end of the 19th century, uh, enshrining, as it were, the myth of literacy. 
How literate were the signatories? The number of signatories is in fact uncertain. Estimates vary from 512 to 541, and many were written by the government clerk on behalf of the chief concerned, a practice common in medieval manuscripts. But on my count, the highest possible number of signatures, as distinct from crosses or moco patterns, is 72. Could the Maori in my first slide read what he was signing in even the most literal way? Even if he could do that, the odds are heavily loaded against him knowing how to write even his own name. Well, you've got a slide there from the treaty, and you've got, what, one, two, three, three signatures, and you can see how marvellously fluent they are. Um, the rest of them are not signatures in our sense, in the sense of betokening literacy in the language at all. There's another one there. Well, we come on to a man whose image may stand before you while I conclude. Um, in any case, whose Māori was it? Of course, it was not indigenous Māori, but missionary Māori, specifically Williams's English Protestant missionary Māori, learnt from the distinctive dialect of the Napui tribe. Not only the concepts, but many of the words for all their Māori form were English. Before it was signed, Governor Hobson explained and Williams translated that if the chiefs did sign, the Queen would protect them. Another official said the Governor had not come to take away their land, but to secure them in possession of what they held. For the Māori's present, the very form of public discourse and decision-making was oral and confirmed in the consensus, not in the document. In signing the treaty, many chiefs made complementary oral conditions which were more important than the words on the page. For the merely illiterate, the document and its implications was meaningless. For the merely literate, the ability to sign one's name was a trap. At the end of the first day, as Hobson went to his boat, an elderly chief rushed in front of him, Hobson being the governor who was presiding over all of this, um, an elderly chief rushed in front of him and looked staringly and scrutinizingly, says Colenso, into the governor's face. And having surveyed it, exclaimed in a shrill, loud and mournful voice, Colenso was reluctant to translate, but the governor pressed him. And so Colenso did translate and says, he says, alas, an old man, he will soon be dead. And Hobson was soon dead, but the document lived on. The next day, 6th of February, Colenso reports that some 300 to 400 Māoris were scattered in small parties according to their tribes, talking about the treaty, but evidently not understanding, understanding it. The native chiefs were called in, on in a body to come forward and sign the document. As the first did so, Colenso stepped forward and said to the governor, Will Your Excellency allow me to make a remark or two before that chief signs the treaty? Oh, certainly, sir. Uh, may I ask, Your Excellency, whether it is your opinion that these natives understand the articles of the treaty which they are now called upon to sign? I, this morning... Hobson interrupted him. If the native chiefs do not know the contents of this treaty, it's no fault of mine. I wish them fully to understand it. They've heard the treaty read by Mr. Williams. Colenso, uh, true, Your Excellency, but the natives are quite children in their ideas. It's no easy matter, I well know, to get them to understand fully, to comprehend a document of this kind. Uh, still, I, I think they ought to know somewhat of it to constitute its legality. I've spoken to some chiefs concerning it who have no idea whatever as to the purpose of the treaty. Mr. Busby here cited the comment of one chief who said, um, the native mind could not comprehend these things. They must trust to the advice of their mission. 
So you have this interpretive role coming in in the whole question of literacy, again, an understanding of a foreign, a foreign concept. Colenso says, yes, and that's the very thing to which I was going to allude. The missionary should do so, but at the same time, the missionary should explain the thing in all its bearings to the natives so that it should be their very own act and deed. Then, in case of a reaction taking place, the natives could not turn round on the missionary and say, you advised me to sign that paper, but never told me what were the contents thereof. The governor replied, I am in hopes that no such reaction will take place, and Colenso gave up. Then, 46 chiefs, anxious to get home, played this new game and put their marks on the parchment. They included two chiefs who had declaimed strongly against signing. But, as Colenso records, Marupo, having made his mark as he could neither read nor write, shook hands heartily with the governor and left. To pursue the sociology of that text at one stage further, in all the English versions of the treaty, the chiefs cede to Her Majesty, the Queen of England, absolutely and without reservation, all the rights and powers of sovereignty. The question is, what was meant by sovereignty? Did it mean that the chiefs gave up to the crown their personal power and supreme status within their own tribes? Or was it only something more mundanely administrative, like governorship? In fact, the word used by Williams to translate sovereignty was precisely that, kawana tonga, which you saw on the wall earlier, a transliteration of governor, kawana, um, with a suffix to make it abstract. Such was his translation of the order for morning service, that all our doings may be ordered by the governance. What he significantly omitted in translating sovereignty was the genuine Maori word, mana, meaning personal prestige and the power that followed from it, or even the word rangatiratanga, meaning chieftainship. He had used both words in translating Corinthians with its references to the kingdom of God and all authority and power. Had a Maori heard that he was giving up either his mana or his rangatiratanga, he could never have agreed to the treaty's terms. Williams and Hobson's text set the trap which King Lear fell into when he said to Albany and Cornwall, I do invest you jointly with my power, preeminence, and all the large effects that troop with majesty. Only we shall retain the name and all the addition to a king, where addition implies ultimate personal prestige and authority. There are other textual problems created by the versions. Most tragically, the English versions yield the Queen an exclusive right of preemption, which involved nominal purchase prices over such Maori lands as the tribes must be might be disposed to alienate. They had to offer them the crown first. Again, William's translation misled those Maoris who could understand it. His version simply mentioned the offer of such land to the crown, among others, for such payment as may be agreed. Once more, Colenso, writing to the Church Mission Society, did not for a moment suppose that the chiefs were aware that by signing the treaty they had restrained themselves from selling their land to whomsoever they will. Um, he cites one Maori who thought he had signed the uh, who, though he had signed the treaty, had since offered land for sale. And on being told he couldn't do it, he replied, "What? Do you think I won't do what I like with my own?" Williams later defended himself, saying, "Well, he, he had explained the text orally, but only the documents, of course, survive." and successive governments right through to our own day choose the English documents to act on. In such reports, Colenso shows his perception of the complex relationships of oral witness, text, print, and political and economic power. Print is still too recent for the Maori. The oral traditions persist in a distrust of the document and in a persistent refusal by young Maoris to accept political decisions based on it. During a Russian scare, as absurd as this may seem for New Zealand, 
During a Russian scare in the 1880s, the government preempted the purchase of Maori land at Bastion Point, a fine site overlooking Auckland Harbour. When a more recent government proposed to resell it for luxury housing, it was occupied by Maori protesters. And in my mind's eye, I can still see vividly the television news pictures of police and military vehicles as they moved in to evict the squatters. I cite a couple of a news item from a paper at this time, or no, in, in February of last year, and I'm sure in about three weeks' time, the New Zealand newspapers will again report as they did then. 99 protesters were arrested as riot-equipped police took strong precautions at the Waitangi Day celebrations to prevent recurrence of last year's violence and firebombing. I can't avoid seeing such human behaviour as intimately related to a set of texts, their forms, and comprehension in social contexts, in a word, I believe, to bibliography. The book, in all its forms, enters history only as an evidence of human behaviour. Now, Colenso died, and I really am getting to the end. Um, Colenso died in 1899, at the ripe old age of 88, um, 36 hours after penning his last letter to Coupland Harding, the man who could, perhaps on some other occasion, um, complete the model which I've tried to sketch by translating it from the level of mere printing to typography and the book as an expressive form. Um, here we have Coupland Harding, and here the first of a series which I'll give you very, very quickly of his work. Um, Colenso left to Harding 200 pounds for his son William Colenso Harding and all his printing materials, including my sole composing stick with which I did so much work both in England and in New Zealand. Harding was a worthy recipient and was later to note it was in this stick that the Maori New Testament of 1837 was set and also the Treaty of Waitangi, truly a venerable relic. But we're going to have to wait for another occasion, if you should ever dare to invite me back and transgress the 55 minutes which I'm allowed, um, uh, for Coupland Harding. But just before I close, I'll show you just the soupçon of his superb journal, Typo, um, which he edited and published in New Zealand in the 1880s and 1890s. That's it, thank you.